So let's go ahead and open up to the book of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 15. And we are going to get through two chapters tonight, Isaiah 15 and 16, because both of these chapters are dealing with the same theme, which is the proclamation or the oracle of judgment against Israel's enemy, Moab. And as we have mentioned here in this uh, study, uh, starting a couple of chapters ago, God begins to pronounce these series of oracles or judgments against all of these nations that are Israel's enemies. Some of them were literal um, um, fulfillments that happened immediately after Isaiah prophesied. Some of them were future, will be future fulfillments, speaking of future prophecy. Uh, and so it's going to be similar to that tonight. In Isaiah chapter 15 and 16, there is a contemporary fulfillment of this prophecy soon after Isaiah gives it, and, and Moab is judged, as we'll see here tonight. But then God again shows Isaiah the future, the future reign of Jesus Christ, and even the great tribulation period. Uh, and it's a fascinating prophecy here in Isaiah chapter 16 where God actually predicts, many Bible scholars believe that God is predicting the place that the Jews are going to flee during the great tribulation period, which is none other than the rock city of Petra in the modern nation of Jordan uh, across the Jordan River to the east of uh, Israel, which is Edom or Moab. Edom was to the south, Moab was to the north. So uh, Petra is in modern-day Jordan, uh, and Moab was the Old Testament name of what is now today uh, the modern city of Jordan. So it's, it's a pretty interesting prophecy here. Isaiah 15 is pretty much dealing with uh, what, what happened in ancient times. The first five verses of chapter 16 are the future because we see the kingdom of, of the Messiah uh, ruling and reigning there um, through from one to five, and then, and then Isaiah pivots back to the Old Testament prophecy again. So, of course, Isaiah didn't know. The prophets didn't really understand what they were writing. They didn't know exactly when or how or where the prophecies would be fulfilled. They just knew the Holy Spirit was telling them to write this. They wrote it down. And then we have the benefit, of course, of hindsight to look back on history and see how these prophecies were, were fulfilled in the past or how they will be fulfilled uh, in the future. And so I've entitled this message, Preserving God's Elect, Preserving God's Elect. So chapter 15 of Isaiah and verse 1, the burden against Moab, because in the night Ar of Moab is laid waste and destroyed, because in the night Kir of Moab is laid waste and destroyed. Now, the Moabites were the Jews' eastern neighbors. And there is a, a, a long history, actually, uh, of the Moabites tied to the nation of Israel. As I mentioned um, on Sunday, this last Sunday, the Moabites are descended from Abraham's nephew, Lot. And so it's kind of a creepy, weird story of how... Moab came to pass, uh, and many of you, I'll read it to you if you don't know the story. It's a story of Lot taking his two daughters and having children through this ancestral relationship with his two daughters. Lot was a mess. He was one of the rulers of Sodom. Uh, and then God obliterated Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sexual sin, primarily uh, the sin of homosexuality was what God was calling out there for Sodom and Gomorrah. But God spared Lot because Abraham, in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham pleaded that God would save his nephew. Abraham loved his nephew Lot. It was his nephew, his brother's son. And so he was begging God in Genesis chapter 18 to please don't wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah without taking out my nephew and his family. He was saying if there's, you know, 40 righteous, will you spare the city? If there's 30, 20, 10 righteous, will you spare the city? God said if there's 10, I'll spare the city. But there wasn't 10. There, was, there really wasn't anybody righteous in that city at all, as we see from Lot's behavior. But God saved Lot before he wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah because Lot was tied to Abraham and God had made promises to Abraham. And Abraham interceded uh, and implored God to save his nephew. But Lot was such a mess from living in Sodom for all these years where there was just gross sexual immorality taking place everywhere. Uh, and and here's, here's how Moab came to be. 
In Genesis chapter 19 and verse 30, we read this about Lot. This is after God had obliterated uh, with fire and brimstone from heaven, Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19 verse 30 says this, Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, or get him drunk, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So this twisted, perverted, sick thinking. Number one, they thought there was no one on earth left but, but them, the two sisters and their old father, Lot, uh, which was, of course, not true. There was lots of people alive on the earth. Just Sodom and Gomorrah were wiped out and the, and, and the cities right there. Um, but they're saying we need to preserve the lineage of our father. We need to keep our father's name alive. So it says in verse 33, so they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. He was so drunk. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose Thus, both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. Now, God is not saying that this is okay. He's just telling us this is what happened. This is the reality. God doesn't hide it. He doesn't sanitize the history for us. He tells us exactly what happened. This is the truth. These, these daughters got their father drunk and, uh, and lay with him and became pregnant. So it says, thus, both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father, the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. And he is the father of the Moabites to this day. And of course, this day would have been the day that uh, Moses was writing down the book of Genesis. He's the author of the book of Genesis, recording the history there. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. And he is the father of the people of Ammon to this day, or the Ammonites. And of course, the Moabites and the Ammonites, who would have been relatives of um, Abraham, therefore relatives of Isaac and Jacob, so they would have been somewhat distant cousins, far removed cousins from uh, Israel or Jacob, uh, but they were nothing but a problem for the Jews. They gave nothing but trouble to the Jews uh, throughout their history. Although the Moabites typically left the Jews alone. They really didn't attack them because they really weren't really strong enough to. But uh, they weren't necessarily their friends. Uh, they, they, they just weren't necessarily always their enemies. Israel had other enemies like the Philistines who were always fighting them. But not so much the Moabites. Although the Moabites did give trouble to the Jews throughout their history. So this is uh, modern-day Jordan, as I mentioned earlier. And what's interesting here is that um, the Moabites not only were the descendants of Lot, uh, but they are also in the book of Judges. You see Balak, who was the king of Moab, who was threatened by the children of Israel when the children of Israel were being led by Moses through the wilderness. Remember, they came up through the east of the Jordan River. So the Jews, two and a half million, perhaps Jews, came up into the area of Moab as they were gonna cross the Jordan River. On the east side of the Jordan River was Moab. They were gonna cross the Jordan River and come into the promised land. And so uh, Balak, the king of Moab, uh, actually called a prophet of Israel, a, a hireling prophet of Israel named Balaam. Uh, and this King Balak hired Balaam to come and to curse the nation of Israel, as you remember in the book of Judges. And every time that Balaam uh, tried to curse the nation, he couldn't curse them. He would bless them with his mouth. And, uh, and so he could not pronounce a curse against God's people. He could only bless them. So finally, the, the king of Moab, uh, you know, told Balak, just, uh, Balak told Balaam, just stop prophesying because every time you open your mouth, you're speaking a blessing. I'm paying you to speak a curse. He goes, I can't curse the people that God has blessed, right? So uh, he couldn't, he, because he was apparently at one point a real prophet of God, he couldn't curse God's people. Every time he opened his mouth, he blessed them. 
Uh, however, he did trick the children of Israel into getting them to commit acts of fornication with the daughters of Moab. And then the daughters of Moab, after, again, getting the uh, uh, Israeli young men drunk with wine, uh, took them into their bedchambers to sleep with them and then had them worship their gods. And once the children of Israel worshiped the gods of the Moabites, then God judged his people. And so he brought a they brought a judgment upon themselves because the prophet could not curse them. So he said, well, here's how you could get, uh, you know, get their God to judge them, the God of Israel to judge his people is by getting them to go after other gods. And so uh, there, there's another example of the Moabites in Israel's history, kind of being a thorn uh, in their side. Uh, additionally, in the book of Ruth, we find that there is the Moabite, whose name is Ruth, who married Boaz, and Boaz and Ruth had a child named Obed, who had a son named Jesse, who had a son named King David. And so David's great-great-great-grandmother uh, was a Moabitess. So, so Jesus, who is the literal physical descendant of, uh, of David, uh, of the tribe of Judah, also then would have some of the uh, Moabite lineage as, as a human through Mary, because Mary was of the uh, uh, seed of David as well. So it's very interesting. The Moabites also uh, had some good with, with Ruth, and, uh, and Boaz and, and Ruth were the ones who were the forebearers of David who would come, uh, Obed, Jesse, and then David. You remember when David's family was, uh, David was running and fleeing from Saul. Saul was trying to kill him. A couple of times, Saul, uh, David actually came into the area of the Moabites, and they protected him from Saul uh, when he was fleeing for his life in En Gedi, the southern part of Israel in the mountains there by the Dead Sea. Uh, he also, David also sent his family, his mother and his father, because his mother and father, his father would have been related to the Moabites, he sent them over to Moab, and the Moabites protected David's family until he conquered uh, uh, his enemies and he took over the throne after Saul was killed uh, in battle. So Moab has a very interesting uh, history that you could study as you study through the Old Testament. Now this prophecy back in Isaiah, uh, this prophecy was given approximately 704 B.C., and the majority of this prophecy would be fulfilled within three years. You'll see that toward the end of Isaiah chapter 16, God states that this prophecy will be fulfilled in three years. And actually, the Assyrians came to attack the Moabites in 702 BC. So within two years, the prophecy was actually fulfilled. Uh, historians uh, tell us, and the Assyrians have this recorded in their history as well. Um, so again, in 15, Isaiah 15, verse 1, the burden against Moab, because in the night, Ar of Moab is laid waste and destroyed, because in the night, Kir of Moab is laid waste and destroyed. So in the night indicates when the attack would come and also indicates that it would be when they're not expecting it. It would be an attack that would come suddenly in the night, something that, would, uh, that they wouldn't really be prepared for. And the historians tell us, the Assyrian historians uh, record that their king, whose name was Sargon, led his troops down. Remember, the Assyrians were the powerful nation at this time. Uh, led his armies down from Assyria in the north, modern-day uh, Assyria be modern-day Iraq, coming down from the north. He was going to go and attack Arabia, which is modern-day Saudi Arabia, and he had to pass through with his armies. He had to pass through the land of Moab, or modern-day Jordan. And as he passed through Moab, he just blasted them. He, th this, this king just came in and just conquered Moab on route to attack the Arabians because that's how the Assyrians were. They just terrified everybody. Uh, and so that's when this prophecy was fulfilled, was in 702 BC. Then after the Assyrian army passed through Moab to the south to Arabia to go and conquer Arabia, they came back the same way. And then they just hit him again. They, it, was like, it was like a wave going in and coming out that they attacked him on their way down and just obliterated them. And then when they were coming back to their own land, they hit him again and they, they blasted them again uh, for good measure just to remind them that they were the powerhouse. And really, the Moabites never really recovered as a nation from uh, that attack uh, from King Sargon and the Assyrians in 702 
B.C. Now, we're told here of a couple of, of uh, landmarks, a couple of markers here. Uh, because in the night, Ar of Moab is laid waste and destroyed. Because in the night, Kir of Moab is laid waste and destroyed. So he's, he's naming some of the, the local mountains or some of the local cities uh, that would have been known to the people at that time. Kir is, is known, is another name for Kirak, which was a mountain uh, that was 10 miles uh, from the southeast corner of the Dead Sea. Now, verse 2 says this, He has gone up to the temple and to Dibon, to the high places to weep. Moab will weep over Nebo and over Mediba, and on their heads will be baldness, and every beard will be cut off. So this uh, word temple in verse 2 is the word bayeth, which means house or temple. And it was likely speaking of the temple of their god uh, Chemosh or Chemosh. And uh, basically that the judgment was going to come against their temple, indicating it's going to come against their god that they worshipped. Uh, Dibon there in verse 2 is also a town that was on the east side of the Jordan River. Uh, where a famous Moabite stone was found. Nebo in verse uh, two also. Nebo is the mountain on which Moses saw the promised land on Mount Nebo. He saw the promised land on the east side of the Jordan River, but God did not permit Moses to enter the promised land. He died uh, there in the wilderness. He didn't get to enter because Moses misrepresented God to the people when he struck the rock. When God had told him to speak to the rock, he struck it and misrepresented God to the people. And therefore, he was not permitted to enter into the land of promise. And then we know that this is symbolically speaking of the law can't get you to heaven because Moses was the lawgiver and the law can't get you to heaven. It's only through grace that we could get into the ultimate promised land, which is into uh, heaven and grace and peace come through Jesus Christ, of course. Uh, Mediba was another uh, city. Uh, it was actually a city in the, in the land of Reuben, of the tribe of Reuben. Again, Reuben was on the east side of uh, the Jordan River. Now, when it talks about their heads will be bald and every beard will be cut off, this was uh, culturally what they would do when they were mourning. They would shave their heads and they would shave their beards uh, in order to, and they would dress in sackcloth in order to appear to be mourning. And they would weep. Sometimes they would put dust on their heads to, it's kind of a way to show humility before your God, uh, that you're nothing, you know, you're, you're, you're naked, uh, your, your dust, you put dust on your head, you know, you're, you're wearing sackcloth that's not comfortable. Sackcloth is an itchy, scratchy camel's hair kind of a, a, a coat. And so it's a, it's a method of humility. It's a method what they would do to humble themselves before their God, to show humility because they were just getting uh, obliterated by this invading army. Again, in verse 3, it says, in their streets, they will clothe themselves with sackcloth. So these were all methods of expression of humility and of crying out to God uh, for mercy. And on the tops of the houses and in their streets, everyone will wail, weeping bitterly. Heshbon and Eliel will cry out. Their voice shall be heard as far as Jahaz. Therefore, the armed soldiers of Moab will cry out, his life will be burdensome to him. And so there's going to be weeping and, and mailing, uh, wailing in these different cities, Heshbon and Eliah, uh, and as far as Jahaz. And these were cities that were 15, 20, 30 miles away from each other. Uh, and so the idea is that the judgment will be so great that the people would just be mourning and wailing and that you would even everywhere throughout the land, no matter what city you were in, the people would be wailing and mourning and they would hear each other uh, even over great distances because they would be just crying and weeping because of the judgment that came upon them. And it's interesting, the Middle Eastern culture to this day still weeps and wails uh, at their funerals. If you look at the funerals of the Arab peoples and the Middle Eastern peoples, it's very uh, cultural for them to, to just kind of weep and wail at certain parts of their funeral services as part of their history, their historical culture went all the way back to Bible times. Verse 5, he says, My heart will cry out for Moab. His fugitives shall flee to Zoar like a three-year-old heifer, for by the ascent of Luhith they will go up with weeping, for in the way of Horonaim they will raise up a cry of destruction, for the waters of Nimrim will be desolate, for the green grass has withered away, the grass fails, there is nothing 
green. So even Isaiah is saying that his heart, this judgment is going to be so great that God was showing him against this people that his heart was broken. He says, my heart, Isaiah is talking, my heart will cry out uh, for Moab uh, because, you know, we, we, we shouldn't like to see God judge people. It shouldn't be something that's sweet to us to watch people suffer, even if they deserve to suffer. We should be those who have compassion and mercy uh, upon even those who are God's enemies, who, uh, you know, Jesus wept over Jerusalem as he knew what was going to come upon Jerusalem because they were rejecting him. And so we should be those who have tender hearts, even when God is uh, judging people and they deserve to be judged. Our, our heart should not rejoice in that. That's God's business. Our heart should uh, be uh, uh, mourning and, and, and crying out for those who are being judged by God so that they could be saved. It's interesting here that he mentions this river called uh, Nimrim in verse 6 for the waters of Nimrim will be desolate for the green grass has withered away the grass fails and there is nothing green it's believed that this is the wadi uh, which is like a uh, a river uh, there in the desert of the wadi Numeria is another name for this uh, Nimrim this creek or river named Nimrim little creek or little river named Nimrim Uh, and this was a river that ran from the south actually into the Dead Sea and this would have been the southern part of uh, the nation of Edom. And it would have been fresh water for them. So they would have been able to irrigate their lands and so forth. And what the Assyrians would do, as was common in ancient warfare, is they would block up the sources of water of their enemies just to kind of, kind of spit on them and kind of one final insult after they just demolished them with their attacks. They would, they would uh, wall up and, and block up their rivers and dam up their rivers so they couldn't have fresh water or pollute the waters. They'd throw dead bodies into the wells and things like this in order to rot their water so they couldn't have water to drink afterwards. And it was just like an insult you know, when you lost a war in ancient times, you lost everything. I mean, there was no oftentimes rebuilding when these ancient uh, powers would, would come against you. And so he's saying the waters of Nimrim will be desolate. There, this, this freshwater river is going to be dried up that you count on to grow your grass and to feed your flocks and your herds and for your, you know, growing your fruits and your vegetables and so forth. He continues... Verse 7, therefore the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up they will carry away to the brook of the willows. For the cry has gone all around the borders of Moab. It's wailing to Eglaim and it's wailing to Beer Elim. For the waters of Diamond will be full of blood because I will bring more upon Diamond, lions upon him who escapes from Moab and on the remnant of the land. And so these were all markers that they would have recognized in that time. These are cities that they would have recognized, uh, areas that they would have known what he's talking about. The waters of Dimon will be full of blood. So another fresh water uh, river or source would have been full of blood, probably because of the peop- all the people that were killed and the blood running into the, uh, I- into the creeks and into the rivers. And then he says, not only that, but the wild animals are going to be there, like attacking the people after the army is done. After the Assyrian army comes in, uh, the lion is going to come upon him. Lions will come upon him who escapes from Moab and on the remnant of the land. They're not even going to be able to control the wild animals in the land after uh, this attack from the Assyrians. It was going to be uh, a complete destruction uh, of Moab. Now, the prophecy continues here into chapter 16, and as you know, uh, there were no chapter breaks in the original manuscripts, as chapter breaks are put in by the translators and the Bible scholars and the, and the scribes. So we read this in chapter 16, verse 1. Now, Isaiah is looking toward the future. So, uh, although he, I'm sure he doesn't know it, he is now writing about the time of uh, the throne of David, the one who's going to sit on the tabernacle of David. And so he's, he's looking now at the end times and at the, what's going to lead up to the reign of David or the reign of, of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He says, send the lamb, Isaiah 16, 1, to the ruler of the land from Selah to the wilderness to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Now, throughout the history of the Moabites, Since the time of King David, King David was the first king who really began to conquer the entire promised land as a king and take possession of what God had given 
uh, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through the appropriation of the 12 tribes and the land that was given to the 12 tribes. And David was the warrior king who really conquered the land uh, and, and subdued the land for Israel. He had the 12 tribes united under him after Saul was killed in battle with the Philistines. Uh, and then his son Solomon was the richest king, the wealthiest king uh, in the ancient world, especially at that time. Uh, and so Solomon also uh, was ruling over the majority of the promised land, not all of the promised land, but, but the majority of the promised land. Um, and then the enemies of Israel would have to pay tribute to them. So King David, it's recorded for us that the Moabites had to pay King David a tribute every year so that David would leave them alone. It's kind of a way it would be like for protection that you would pay a rival king who's more powerful than you so they wouldn't attack you or you know, raid your peoples or your lands or anything. And so David set it up to where they would pay tribute to Israel, to the king of Israel, in order to have peace with the Moabites. The Moabites would sin. Uh, sheep and lambs to Israel. We're told in the Chronicles that King Solomon took 100,000 sheep annually from the Moabites. They had to pay him 100,000 sheep, King Solomon, every year in order to pay tribute and to have peace with Israel. And so uh, over time after Solomon, the, uh, the kingdom split into two nations. The uh, 10 northern tribes became Israel. The two southern tribes became Judah. And the Moabites still continued to pay to the kings of Samaria, the northern kings, for quite some time until finally uh, when the Assyrians conquered the ten northern tribes and the Moabites didn't have to pay tribute anymore. But what God is saying here is there's going to be a future time when they're going to be sending lambs again to Israel from Moab. So he's saying, send the lamb to the ruler of the land, from Selah to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. The lamb, some Bible scholars also say this is a reference to the lamb of God, which is Jesus Christ. That the lamb is uh, a recognition that the Moabites are going to be worshiping uh, King David, Jesus Christ, who is the seed of David, sitting on the throne of David, ruling for a thousand years over the whole earth during the millennial reign of Christ. And that would indicate, the lamb would indicate that they are seeing Jesus as the king, the lamb of God. And there will be sacrifices and offerings and a rebuilt temple during that time where the Jews will be offering uh, sacrifices uh, at that time in the rebuilt temple during the millennial reign of Christ. Zechariah chapter 14 is clear about that. So the word Selah in verse 1 of chapter 16 uh, is the word Petra, which the word Petra means rock. And so many Bible scholars believe that this is a specific reference to the rock city of Petra because of what's coming here in this prophecy in the next few verses. It's going to be a place where the Jews are going to be hidden. The outcasts of Israel are going to be protected for a time or for a season from their enemies in this area. Uh, Selah in the wilderness, Petra or rock city in the wilderness, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Verse 2, for it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest. So shall be the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Verse 3, take counsel, execute judgment. Make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. Here it is. Hide the outcasts. Do not betray him who escapes. Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler, for the extortioner is at an end. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. Verse 5. In mercy the throne will be established. And one will sit on it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. So we know this is a future prophecy because it's speaking about the one who's going to sit on the throne of David. This is the Messiah and the messianic reign ruling and reigning over Israel. We know that the Messiah is Jesus Christ. So we know that this is a future prophecy. This hasn't yet happened. And what's amazing is, is that as you study in times prophecy, you see that even Jesus affirmed this prophecy that there would be a time when the children of Israel would have to flee in such a sudden uh, sort of an event 
that they're going to have to get out so quickly that he says, don't even go back to get your coats. Don't even go back to get anything from your house. It's the time of the great tribulation period. And where are the Jews going to go? They're going to go into, across the Jordan River, into Moab or into modern day Jordan. And again, many, many Bible scholars believe that they're going to go into what is the rock city of Petra. If you've ever seen one of the Indiana Jones movies, uh, where it's with Sean Connery and they're going into this cave and they're riding their horses or camels or whatever it is as they come up to that rock city. That rock city in that movie, I think it was the, the third movie when Sean Connery was in it, that's Petra. That's real Petra. It's there today. And it's a rock city carved out of this canyon that goes back, it goes up, it goes into these caves. And uh, it's so narrow into this, uh, uh, into this entrance, into this area of Petra, that only two horsemen can ride side by side at certain points. So no big army can actually get in there with, with a ground force. And because it's rock, you really can't even probably blow it up with bombs because it's just rock. It's carved out of rock. It's a pretty incredible thing. You can look it up online, the rock city of Petra. And so many Bible scholars, including Pastor Chuck Smith, who founded Calvary Chapel, he believes that uh, Petra is going to be where the Jews are going to flee during the great tribulation period in fulfillment of this prophecy that we just read here in Isaiah chapter 16. Now in Daniel chapter 9, just as a reminder, we've, we've talked about some of this throughout this study, but just as a reminder, in Daniel chapter 9, we're told about the 70 weeks of Daniel and then and the weeks were weeks of years. So uh, 77 uh, periods of seven years were uh, determined for the Jews and for the holy city Jerusalem. We know that 69 of those sevens or 483 years were already fulfilled when Jesus Christ came the first, first time. We also know there's one seven-year period left to be fulfilled, the 70th week of Daniel. And so we read in Daniel chapter 9 in verse 27, then he, speaking of the Antichrist, the prince of the people who is to come, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Remember, one week is seven years here. But in the middle of the week, or three and a half years into the seven-year period, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So these are, these are specific prophecies that God is giving us about the end times, about the last days. Uh, there is a covenant that's going to be made between the antichrist and the jews and the nations around israel probably including the nations of europe that would be uh required to participate if there was going to be a covenant we know that the antichrist is going to come from the revived roman empire uh the roman empire was western europe southern and western europe and uh, and so he's going to be a ruler over the revived Roman Empire, he is going to strike a deal or make a deal with the Jews and with the Palestinians or the Arab peoples and with the United Nations, the nations of the world, in order to permit the Jews to rebuild their temple. Uh, we, we, we know that this is something that's going to have to happen with the world powers allowing the Jews. They want to rebuild their temple. Now they have everything ready to rebuild their temple, but they need the political environment to permit them to rebuild their temple. And right now they don't have that political environment. Although the United States is supporting Israel, um, we don't have the authority uh, as the United Nations would or as the European Union would to really allow the Jews to rebuild their temple. It would have to come from the European leaders to give permission to the Jews to rebuild their temple. So we know that this Antichrist is going to come. Part of what he's going to do is pretend to be a friend of the Jews. He's going to be their false Messiah. Remember, Jesus says, uh, you know, you, you don't receive me, and I come in my Father's name talking to the Jews, but you'll receive the one who comes in his own name. Him you will receive. Speaking about the Antichrist. They're going to accept the Antichrist, believe the Antichrist is their Messiah, because the Antichrist is going to give them what they want, which is peace with the Palestinians and a new temple, allow them to rebuild their temple. And so they're going to think that he is their Messiah. He's the one that Jesus says is going to come in his own name because you reject the one who has come in his father's name. And yet, it's go he's going to deceive the people of Israel. And after three and a half years, he is going to do this abomination of desolation. He's going to first bring an end to the sacrifice and offering, which indicates the temple will be active. They will be actively offering animal sacrifices again 
in Jerusalem. And remember, the Temple Institute has it all in place. They just need the political leader to allow them to do this. They're ready to start this uh, sacrificial system as soon as they, the political environment allows them to. But halfway through, three and a half years through this seven-year period, which is known as the tribulation period, he's going to bring an end to sacrifice and offering. He's going to stop the Jews from doing their daily sacrifices. Uh, and then it says, And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So the abomination which brings desolation is when he comes into the Holy of Holies in the rebuilt temple of Israel on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and he declares that he is God, and he demands to be worshipped as God. That is what is being spoken of, which is the abomination of desolations. Now, Jesus also warned the Jews about this in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15, Jesus said this, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place whoever reads let him understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his home and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the sabbath verse 21 for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time no nor ever shall be and unless those days were shortened no flesh would be saved but for the elect's sake those days will be shortened and so Jesus is warning those believers those people who were here during the tribulation period I don't believe he's talking to the church I think the church is going to be raptured prior to this happening so he's taking, speaking to God's elect specifically to the Jewish people who were there in Israel at this time who would be affected by the Sabbath day shutdowns be affected by the travels during the winter who were living there in Jerusalem where the temple is, the rebuilt temple is at this time that the Antichrist declares that he is God and demands to be worshiped as God. As a matter of fact, Daniel also tells us back in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 11 about this time, from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. So God is very specific. These are not vague prophecies. These are very specific prophecies that God's giving through different prophets at different times, uh, but all talking about the same event. So the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, that's where he puts an end to the oblation and sacrifice, the grain offerings and the sacrificial offerings halfway through the tribulation period. Then the abomination of desolation is set up. So this is the idol that the Antichrist sets up that is a living idol. It's a living image that speaks that everyone is going to have to worship this idol. This is what he's talking about, the abomination of desolation. Uh, and he says there's going to be 1,290 days. It's interesting. Uh, 42 months or three and a half years is actually 1,260 days. And so uh, we know that it's three and a half years plus an extra 30 days. And some Bible scholars believe that that's going to be the amount of time that Jesus, when he returns, that 30-day period is when he's coming to conquer and to set up his kingdom and then to separate uh, the sheep uh, from the goats, the sheep on his right hand, the goats on his left hand, to judge the nations and how they treated uh, his people, the Jews, during the tribulation period. Now, if you turn to the book of Revelation... And you may notice that I'm like repeating this a lot because I think I've repeated this a lot through this study, this uh, abomination of desolation. Every time we come across it, I take time to teach on it because I want people to really understand this because I believe we're getting close to this time. I believe we are getting closer to the time of this being fulfilled. And so we need to be aware of what the Bible says. The information needs to be passed on to the next generation. And so... Um, even if you know this already, it's good for you to be reminded of this because these are the days we're living in and a lot of people have a lot of questions about this. So it's good that you understand this and know where to find these things in the Bible. Revelation and chapter 13 uh, tells us about this one who's coming and this is the detail given about this one who's going to come and bring 
the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of by Daniel the prophet and uh, reiterated by Jesus Christ in Matthew 24. So in Revelation 13 and verse 4, we read this. So they worshiped the dragon. The dragon is the devil who gave authority to the beast. The beast is the Antichrist. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months or three and a half years. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints. These would be the tribulation saints, not the church. And to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. How do we know this is not the church? Because Jesus said the gates of hell will never prevail against his church. And here we're told that he's going to prevail against the saints of God, the elect of God. So this cannot be the church. The gates of hell will never prevail against the church. This is a different group of people after the church is raptured. These are the tribulation saints made up of Jews and Gentiles who trust in Christ during the tribulation period after the church age. And so it says it was granted to him to make war with the saints, to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and, and nation, over the whole world at this time. Remember, this is for how long? It's for 42 months. It's a three-and-a-half-year period. Period. It's halfway through that seven-year period, the 70th week of Daniel. And so the abomination of desolation is when he declares himself as God and he demands to be worshipped as God. We read more detail about this in verse 15. The whole chapter is really about this, but skipping to verse 15 of Revelation 13, he says this. He was given power to give breath to the image of the beast. He's speaking of the false prophet here, the false prophet who's doing signs and wonders in the presence of the Antichrist and who is requiring people to worship the Antichrist. So it says he was given power uh, to bring breath to the image of the beast or to make this image come alive and speak, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or their foreheads so that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it's the number of a man. And his number is 666. So no doubt, at the time this happens, everybody who's here is going to understand what this is at that time. We don't really know what the 666 is. We don't know exactly how the mark is going to be given. We could speculate, based on the technologies that are in place today, that it will be some sort of an identifying tracking chip, like an RFID chip, that will be implanted uh, in the hand, or perhaps uh, some, something being implanted or tattooed on the forehead. You know, they have tattoos now. Google has tattoos that are like computer tattoos that you could tattoo yourself and you could run a computer from your tattoo uh, that they put into your body. So all of these biometrics are out there where they're turning us into, you know, sort of human machines and not just have technology outside of us that we're grown so accustomed to, but they want to put the technology inside of us. And people are putting the technology inside themselves, as you know, all over the world today. Uh, especially throughout a lot of the more progressive European countries. They're all getting chipped over there with microchips so they don't have to worry about money. They're cashless. They don't use money anymore. They don't have keys to start their cars. They don't have keys for their apartments. They don't have passwords for their phones or passwords for their computers at their offices, even in super secure businesses or defense contractors. They have a chip that nobody could really use. I guess if you were to, you know, cut your, your hand off and try and use the chip, it wouldn't work. It'd have to be inside of a living organism in order for it to work. So you couldn't even, like, cut someone's hand off and use their hand as a chip to get into somebody's computer or into their business or something. It won't work if it's not um, in, in a live uh, uh, biology. So it's, it's interesting that God's giving us all this detail. You know, what's so fascinating to me is we're already being conditioned not just to, to, to go cashless, which by the way, in 2021, you watch the World Economic Forum Try to get rid of cash. It's coming. They're going to get rid of cash. They're already starting to get rid of cash in Europe, and they're starting to spread the idea around uh, among baker, bankers in the United States about getting rid of cash in the United States. As a matter of fact, that's why you're seeing the coin shortage everywhere. There is no real coin shortage. They're just testing us to see if we're going to go quietly 
to getting rid of cash. They're making it hard for you. They want exact change if you want to pay uh, with cash. And most people don't want to bother with exact change. Why bother with exact change? Just scan my phone or here's my computer chip on my credit card. Uh, and that's what they want. So they're, they're, they're pushing us toward a cashless society, which then we would be controlled by some uh, organization that controls the technology to where you would be able to either be locked out of your technology or you'd have access to your tech. You'd be locked out of your money or you'd have access to your money depending on the powers that be that are controlling the internet and controlling the technology where all the money is stored. You have the cryptocurrencies. There's money being poured into cryptocurrencies, not just Bitcoin, but all of these cryptocurrencies are exploding all over the world and becoming more and more popular. PayPal is now accepting Bitcoin. So it's becoming something that is becoming normalized. It's it's becoming mainstream. And these, uh, these cryptocurrencies, blockchain technologies, just blow your mind. It's hard to understand how they work. But in essence, they are going to be a replacement, a digital currency that replaces cash for all the nations of the world, not just the United States of America, not just for the you know, British for their pound or you know, the French uh, currency or the German currency or you know, the Deutschmark or the other. It's going to be one currency that all the nations of the world will use. Uh, it is interesting to me that they're already conditioning, conditioning us that we cannot buy or sell without having to obey government orders. So right now we're being conditioned, I believe, with the masks, that if you will not wear a mask, you cannot buy. You're not allowed to go shopping if you don't have a mask on. You know, you could, I guess, sit at home and order and they'll deliver to your door. Uh, but again, someday, Someone who's controlling the internet and the technology could shut down your account if they wanted to, if you had to order online, you see. So if you can't go into a store without wearing a mask and you refuse to wear a mask, then you can't buy. So they're already conditioning us for this as we, as we sit here today in America. Uh, and then if you own a business, you really can't sell your product if you're not requiring masks. You have to require masks if you're going to open the doors of your business. So again, you could see how this is programming us to accept, I have to do this or I can't buy. I have to require people to do this or I can't sell, which is conditioning the world for this mark, which is coming by which you will not be able to buy or sell without this mark or without this identifying chip. We know it's going to be... Uh, the great tribulation period is going to be the worst time on earth because Satan is going to be ruling. Everybody is going to have to worship him. If you won't worship Satan, they shut your credit cards off. They turn off your Bitcoin account. You won't be able to buy or sell if you don't take this mark. And if you do take this mark, you are identifying that you are worshiping the devil himself. And everybody at this time is going to know that that's what they're doing. And once someone takes the mark of the beast, there is no salvation. According to the book of Revelation, anyone who takes the mark of the beast cannot be saved. It's believed that it's possible that the, the technology that they're developing today, we know this is true, but it's likely that it's possible that the technology that's going to be in place at this time is going to actually alter your DNA. It's going to alter your genetic code so that it's going to take away your ability to choose. You, they, they're going to really take away the part of your brain that allows you to make decisions. And so you are going to basically fall in line if you take this mark and do whatever the Antichrist says to do. Really, they're trying to create a slave population is what it is, to just obey and do whatever is asked of them without any thinking for themselves or for yourself or rebelling. And that's why uh, the Bible makes it very clear. Those who take the mark of the beast cannot be saved. There's no possibility of saving them. Uh, and they're going to end up in a place called the lake of fire, according to the book of Revelation. Now, back in Revelation chapter 12, we see again uh, in another sort of a vision about this same event that is coming. Revelation 12 verse 1 says this, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman, this is speaking of the nation of Israel, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, on her head were a garland of 12 stars, then being with child, she cried out in labor, and in pain she gave birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns on his heads. And his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven, and threw them down to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. 
she bore a male, a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So the woman is, spiritually speaking, of Israel, the nation of Israel. Jesus Christ was born through Israel, the nation of Israel. Remember, Israel was the wife of God in the Old Testament. The book of Hosea tells us this and some of the other prophets. God saw uh, Israel as his, his wife. That's why he called her like a, uh, an adulteress when she went after other gods. So through Israel came Jesus Christ, the Christ child. The dragon is the devil. He took a third of the uh, angels when he fell. He swept away a third of the angels with him. They became the demons. And the dragon was there to try and devour the child when he was born, when Jesus Christ was born. We know that Satan tried to have all the baby boys killed uh, through the madman, uh, King Herod. And Jesus was taken by his parents. His dad was warned. Joseph's stepdad was warned in a dream, taken to Egypt. Uh, They're trying to kill him. And so God preserved Jesus. But Satan was right there to try and destroy him as soon as he was born. And then we're told the male child was, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. This is in fulfillment to Psalm chapter 2. Uh, and, and her child was caught up to God into his throne, where Jesus Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Now again, the prophet begins to look at the end times. Verse 6. Then the woman, the woman is Israel, fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there, for 1,260 days. There you have it again. Three and a half years. The same three and a half year period. Who is this speaking to? The Jews. To the nation of Israel. Who is Jesus speaking to? The Jews. The nation of Israel. Who was the prophet Isaiah talking to? He was talking to Moab, modern day Jordan, to help the Jews, God's people Israel, during this time when they're going to need to flee somewhere safely from the Antichrist. And so the woman is going to flee into the wilderness and she's going to have a place prepared by God where she's going to be protected and preserved for, this is the nation of Israel, for 1,260 days or for the three and a half year tribulation period when the Antichrist is bringing uh, all, co- all sorts of wrath upon uh, the earth during that time. If you skip to verse 13 of chapter 12, Revelation 12, 13, Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast down to the earth, he persecuted the woman, Israel, who gave birth to the male child. The male child is Jesus Christ. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time. A time would be a year. Times would be two years. A half a time would be half a year. So that's, again, the three and a half year period. The Great Tribulation period is how long that they're going to be protected in this place, in the wilderness, where they are nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Verse 15, so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by, by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out from its mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, with Israel, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Because remember, during the tribulation period, it's going to be the greatest revival in history among the Jewish people believing on Jesus Christ. Uh, they are going to come, all, you know, almost all the Jews who, who get into the tribulation and even survive the tribulation period are going to trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And then he's going to return at the end of the tribulation period to destroy the Antichrist, their enemy, and to save them and to be their Savior and their deliverer. So it's, a, it's an amazing prophecy. Again, it's, it starts out way back in the Old Testament, but we see the details filled in for us uh, in the New Testament. This three and a half year period of time where the Jews are going to have to flee to this place in the wilderness of safety to hide from the Antichrist. So again, back in chapter 16, verse 3, take counsel, execute judgment, Make your shadow like the middle, uh, make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. Hide the outcasts. Do not betray him who escapes. Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab, or modern day Jordan. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler, speaking of the Antichrist. For the extortioner is at an end, devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. So this is a future prophecy about this time in the future that the Jews are going to need to go into uh, Jordan 
to be saved and to be protected. And God is telling the modern-day Jordans to be kind to his people. He's saying, be kind to my people. Show mercy to them. Uh, You know, hide the outcast. Don't betray him. They're escaping to you. He's telling them this so that they will uh, uh, protect them from the Antichrist at this time. And he he calls the, the Antichrist the spoiler. He calls him here the extortioner. And then he says, but basically devastation is going to cease. The oppressors are going to be consumed out of the land. When? When Jesus Christ returns. Jesus is going to deal with them. Jesus is going to destroy them. And then we read about Jesus in verse 5. In mercy, the throne will be established. Jesus Christ is the merciful God, the merciful Savior. And one will sit on it in truth, in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. Remember, Jesus' reign is going to be defined by justice and righteousness upon the earth, which will result in peace among the nations. Because he is the prince of peace, he will bring peace to the earth, really for the first time since before uh, the fall in the Garden of Eden. And so this one will sit on it in truth, sit on his throne in Jerusalem, in the tabernacle of David. So this is all verses 1 to 5, speaking about the future. Now, Isaiah pivots back in verse 6 through the end of the chapter to again deal with the judgment upon modern-day Moab in his generation. Verse 6, For we have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his haughtiness and of his pride and his wrath. But his lies shall not be so. Therefore, Moab shall wail for Moab. Everyone shall wail for the foundations of Kir Hereseth, you shall mourn, surely they are stricken. So he's basically saying because the Moabites are so filled with pride, and the Bible says that pride comes before a fall, uh, they will not be prideful once the Assyrians get done with them. They're going to be wailing. The foundations uh, are going to be destroyed. They're going to be stricken. They're going to be mourning. Verse 8 says, For the fields of Heshbon languish, and the vine of Sibma, the lords of the nations, have broken down its choice plants, which have reached to Jazer and wandered through the wilderness. Her branches are stretched out. They are gone over the sea. That would be the Dead Sea, right there on the western border of Edom, or Moab, rather. And verse 9, Therefore I will bewail the vine of Shibma with the weeping of Jazer. I will drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Elielah, for battle cries have fallen over your summer fruits and your harvest. So even Isaiah is again bewailing. He's weeping over what is going to come upon. Apparently it was a very beautiful, verdant land back then. It was green. It was beautiful. Uh, they had fresh wadis and rivers uh, that they would irrigate their lands. And he's talking about the, the summer fruits, the, the, the grapevines and the fig trees and so forth, the olive trees. And he's saying that they're all going to be destroyed. They're, you're you're going to be just... Uh, 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 obliterated by your enemies, the Assyrians. Verse 10 says, Gladness is taken away, and joy from the plentiful field. In the vineyards there will be no singing, nor will there be shouting. No treaders will tread out wine in the presses. I have made their shouting cease. Verse 11, therefore my heart shall resound like a harp for Moab and my inner being for Kir Harris. So he's, he's mourning, he's merciful. Isaiah is compassionate even upon his enemies. But he's talking about how apparently they had beautiful vineyards here. And after the Assyrians uh, pass through and attack them and destroy them going down to Arabia and then attack them coming back from Arabia, they, they just destroy all of their vineyards. There's no more harvest. There's no singing. There's no treading out the wine in the wine presses, which, which would have been a big celebration every year for these nations that uh, sold wine and so forth. Verse, verse 12 says, And it shall come to pass when it is seen that Moab is weary on the high place that he will come to his sanctuary to pray, but he will have no prevail. So he's going to pray to his gods at this time and and his gods are not going to answer him and come and save him. Verse 13, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning Moab since that time. But now the Lord has spoken saying, and here it is, within three years as the years of a hired man, the glory of Moab will be despised with all that great multitude and the remnant will be very small and feeble. So God is predicting within three years, the Moabites are going to be destroyed. Prophecy was given approximately 704 BC. The Assyrians attacked the first time 
uh, in 702 BC and then just finished them off later when they were coming back from Arabia. And so within three years, the glory of Moab was destroyed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for giving us the future in advance, all of these wonderful truths and wonderful prophecies, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you give us your Holy Spirit to give us understanding of your word. And we pray, Lord God, that we would even have a deeper and greater understanding of your word as we live in these dark days, as we live, Lord, in these last days. Help us, Father God, to be strong and to be able to give every man an answer uh, who asks us about the hope that is within us. Lord, we do pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for your people, Israel. Lord, we know you have your eyes upon Israel. You have your eyes upon the Jews. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to bless Israel, that you would continue to uh, show them mercy, and you would continue to save a great many of the Jews here in these last days, Father, knowing uh, what is to come is to ultimately bring a national salvation for all of Israel so that, as Paul the Apostle tells us, in Romans chapter 11, that all of Israel will on that day be saved. Lord, bless your people. Strengthen us. Keep us strong. Keep us well. Keep us healthy, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. We all want to thank you for listening. If this message has blessed you, as we all pray that it has, send the link to this podcast to your friends. Working together, we can get Michael's teaching of the whole of God's inerrant word to all those who hunger to hear it. If you would like to see this ministry expand to reach even more of the broken and lost, if you have questions, comments, and prayer requests, email us at coahpodcast at gmail.com. We would be honored to pray for you, as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church to Hatchapi, California.